Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. Like this episode? We hope so. If you want more from the Women of Boy Problems podcast, please join us at Patreon at Recovering 2. We will be releasing exclusive content, and we also have an option where you can connect with us every month for 30 minutes, one-on-one. We hope you join us there. Back to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are very excited to uh, bring you this episode today. We are talking to Dr. Emily Jamia. Uh, She is a sex therapist. And Dr. Emily, welcome with us. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Um, So you, um, we kind of read your uh, bio a bit, and you have a lot of letters after your name. Would you mind telling us kind of who you are, how you got into the field of sex therapy and, and those type of things? Sure. So I'll start with the alphabet soup. Um, So I have two licenses. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional counselor. Um, And then I have a PhD in sexology. And I am certified as a sex therapist by the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So that's what all of that means. Um, And as far as how I got into the field, I think it's kind of one of those things like it found me in a way. Um, I grew up in Southeast Tennessee in a kind of a small town, very conservative. And my dad is an OBGYN. And so, you know, within my own household, things were very open and I felt like I got a very healthy sex education, but that was not the case for most of my peers. And so people, my friends started coming to me with questions, you know, like, Hey, Emily, this is going on. Can you ask your dad or, you know, and so I started giving out sex advice, I think at a very um, early age. And then when I was um, at the university of Texas in Austin, I was studying psychology and trying to figure out what I wanted to specialize in. And I took a few different Um, specialized courses. But when I took the human sexuality course, I was like, this is the most interesting. And so I think by the time I graduated, I had taken all three human sexuality classes that UT offered and um, really focused everything I could in that area. Um, From that point on, I think that, you know, sex is such an intrinsic part of who we are as individuals, and it obviously plays such a huge role in our romantic relationships. And so um, for me, it's like a window into the soul. And, you know, from coming from the psychological psychology field, I just think that's a really interesting and informative way to um, work with people. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And so I will say that I found you, Emily, um, on Instagram. Uh, you do amazing reels. Your Instagram is so fantastic and full of what. So I'm like all about sex. I'm into talking about it. Like I think so I'm all about this. And I don't even know how I can't, whatever I must have been liking <laughs> led me to you. Um, so your content is just so fantastic. So, um, and you also have a fantastic website. So I don't know if you want to kind of share before we jump in, like all the things that you offer, all the things that you do, um, because you have a wonderful website and social media presence. Thank you. So, you know, I think a lot of that took off kind of during COVID. Um, and I also had my second baby during COVID. And so it was just kind of a weird time in terms of, you know, seeing less clients, but still wanting to work. And I think, you know, I've reached a point where I want to use the information I have in different ways and reach as many people as possible. And so the first thing I did during COVID was create an online workshop um, because I'm working on a book um, and I figured the best way to see if people like what I'm writing about is to put it out there in a workshop format and see if anyone bites and they did. And so um, that's become really popular. And so I created that. And then I have um, like different little meditation series that focus on different sexual issues. And that's all on my website um, at emilyjamia.com. And then of course, with social media, I mean, that's really, I think the best way to get information out to the masses, um, you know, for people who, for whatever reason, can't, you know, don't have access to therapeutic services, or maybe just aren't in a place where they feel ready to reach out to a therapist, but still want information. Um, and so I have found that to be really great. And now I'm on TikTok and that's like a whole nother animal. Um, and so my, my niece, my Gen Z niece was helping me with a lot of my social media stuff and really pushed me to get on there. And I pushed back for a long time, but she won and I'm glad she did because it's, it's been great. And so, um, you know, so yes, I, I love just reaching people through different avenues. And so there are lots of ways to connect with me. And then I started a podcast, so that's available too. It's called sex and love with Dr. Emily Jamia. Yeah. And I will, so that your podcast is fantastic. I, I am also very interested in sex around the world. And that is something that you touch on. And it's so cool. Like, I think you have like Belarus. I listened to the one um, from the woman uh, from Holland. Yes. Uh, there was another one. It, you, it's just so cool to listen to yeah. all of the different, like where the world, like it's not, like outside of the American view of sex. It's so cool. Right. I know. I mean, for me, it's like a way to combine two things that I'm really interested in. I mean, I love to travel. I love to learn about different cultures and talk to people wherever I go. And so I figured what better way to continue to do that than by asking people about what their cultural norms are around sexuality. Um, and so that's been really fun because there's a lot of podcasts about sex and relationships, but I don't think as many people are talking to people in different parts of the world. And I think it always helps to have that perspective so that we can better, better understand our own culture around sexuality. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. So, um, our podcast, all three of us, our spouses are, um, suffer from substance use disorder, uh, especially ours with the opiates. And so curious, um, do you get many clients or people reaching out to you who, um, are dealing with, um, like an addicted loved one in any way? So 
A lot of times if someone reaches out to me and there is like an active addiction, I will encourage them to work with, you know, someone specifically on getting the addiction into a place where it's more manageable before I come in to do the work, because I'm sort of kind of a bottom up person. Like if there are mental health issues that need to be addressed, if there are active addiction issues, if they're like, you know, I, I do work with some crisis, but otherwise I think that those fires need to be put out as best as possible before they really do the work on themselves and their relationships. So I have people who have like a history of addiction that, you know, people who are active like in AA or NA who come in, you know, ready to have healthier relationships and have a better understanding about their sexuality. Um, so at that point in their recovery, I would say then I work with them a little bit more. I used to work a lot more um, with people who felt they had sex addictions. Um, so I, for a while, I was a certified sex addiction therapist. And I, while I still definitely think that sex is something that can become out of control and compulsive, there were a few things with the sex addiction model that I was certified in that I kind of disagreed with. And so I no longer treat that population um, as much as I did before. But if people come in with that, then I, I, I don't turn them away. I would say I treat it in a little bit of a different way than I used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So for those, for those people who you have dealt with, who have had addiction kind of in their history, are there common themes that you see within couples as it relates to sex and relationships with those who may have a, an addicted loved one or someone who might be in recovery? Yes. Um, I would say the biggest thing I see is that once they get control or learn how to manage their addiction, that they like sex becomes another thing that they're just out of touch with. I think there is like a term we hear a lot is like they'll become sexually anorexic um, and just really not have a good understanding of healthy sexuality or um, not a good understanding of how to express themselves sexually. And it's kind of like I think for them, while it was really unhealthy, their addiction, you know, it's so in, intertwined in like the pleasure and reward center of the brain. And so is sex. And so I think there's like a disconnect, a hesitancy that people have in surrendering to the pleasures of sex because it can almost feel, make them feel high or make them feel like they're slipping into like addictive patterns again. And so that would, that's what I would say the, biggest, largest percentage of people come in with is they're like, okay, I'm sober now. I've been sober, but I cannot connect sexually with my partner. And so that's probably what I see most. Oh, that's all very oh, interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. interesting. I, Cause I haven't thought of it from that perspective. I usually think about it more from like our perspectives on the spouse's side, where I think at least in my experience, you know, it was, it was hard to connect because of all the baggage of like trust issues, um, and the sense of betrayal, um, infidelity is not part of our story, but I know that that can be a common thing that happens along with addiction. Um, so that's usually where my mind goes to of like where the struggle when it comes to sexual relationships, once you get in recovery is just getting past that like trust and, and the hurt that has been caused from the active use. 
I don't know if that's yes. something. And I would to. say, I would say that what you're describing makes up like the next largest majority of what people come in with. Definitely from the partner side, just not, you know, there's so much that's unknown when you're close with someone who is in an active addiction. There is so much lying and so much secrecy and so much betrayal. And so definitely rebuilding trust is a big part of that. And someone can be, you know, let's say sober for a long period of time and you can trust that they are sober now. Um, but it's like what I was saying before, our sense of self is so wrapped up in our sexuality you cannot really separate the two and so i think there's always a what if there's something i don't know or are they coming forward with like everything they are or are they still compartmentalizing different parts of themselves psychologically and i think we pick up on that like if you're ever with someone and you feel like they're not there a hundred percent the last place usually that shows up is in the bedroom. And I think it's because when we are in bed with another person, that's like one of our most vulnerable states of being. And so if there are any issues that affect us, that's where that's the last place that they show up for most people. So the people can be very healthy um, in most areas of their life, but it's like, that's just a different animal when we're naked in bed with another person. Hmm. It's so interesting. I also, you mentioned before, um, you alluded to like the differences between healthy sexual relationships and unhealthy sexual relationships. And we focus a lot on the fact that, um, you know, we're not perfect either. And we played a part in um, the addiction or the cycle or some of the unhealthy behaviors. So you know, our thing is that we're also recovering. Um, personally, I hadn't had a healthy sexual relationship ever. And so through some of my own recovery, realizing traumas, and I just didn't know what a good, healthy relationship looked like. And so then I also had zero idea what a healthy sexual relationship looked like. So can you kind of tell us like, what, what are some of the key, um, principles or the foundational elements of a truly healthy sexual relationship? Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that what you're describing is so true for so many people who find themselves in relationships with addicts. And there's such a hesitancy for a lot of people for a long time to see how they may have contributed in any way to unhealthy relationship patterns or even to the addiction and so it takes a lot of courage and self-awareness to begin to identify the roles that you know we all play um so thank you but yes i would say this is like my my best test to see if there if you have a healthy sexual relationship and it's so simple but it is so hard for so many people and that is when you're making love can you look at each other in the eye and feel calm and feel close? And for a lot of people, the answer to that is hell no. <laughs> okay. Because 
what a lot of people do is kind of reduce sex down to like a function of the body, right? It's like something physically that you're doing, but sex, human sex is so much more than that. It is emotional. It is relational. It is individual. It is spiritual. And yes, it's physical too. But when you start to kind of tune your partner out, yes, you can maybe like have sex, but are you bringing everything that you are into that moment? And if you are trying to look at each other's eyes while you're making love, and if you feel any kind of, you know, unease or anxiety or fear or overwhelmed or desire to pull back or run away, then that's a sign usually that there's something going on that needs to be addressed. So that's my favorite litmus test for whether or not there is something sexually that needs to be addressed therapeutically. Um, and as far as, you know, what some of the other signs are, of course, like, you know, do you, you know, another really important one is, do you feel safe enough to talk to your partner? Um, safety is so key when it comes to healthy sexuality. Um, do you feel like you can express your desires? Do you feel like you can give your partner feedback and they're not going to judge you or make you feel bad for that or dismiss you or be reactive to what you have to say? Um, you know, is there equal give and take, you know, sex at a bare, bare minimum should obviously be mutually consent. There should be, there, there should be mutual consent and there should be mutual pleasure. And so if it feels out of balance and that's a sign that there's, you know, some unhealthy dynamic at play. Um, and so, and then you also want to kind of weigh how you feel sexually, with how you feel in your relationship, because the two go very hand in hand. Um, and so things could maybe be pretty good in one department, but not so good in the other department. And so you have to look at all of that. So I ask people to kind of gauge like how they're feeling sexually within themselves as individual, as individuals within the context of their relationship and then in their environment as well. Yeah, that's so, um the thought of looking into my husband's eyes, like freaks right. me out. <laughs> and I know that we have a uh, work in this area to do, but it, 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 it freaks me out. Um, yeah. So that's so interesting. Um, because, and another thing, uh, to Jessica, uh, so I've been with my husband since I was 19 and he was, he was using pretty much that whole time. And so, uh, we didn't have sex for two years. And then the first time we did, it was like, I don't even know you, like you're a stranger. Like you had lied to me for these past nine years. Who are you type of thing? And so that's so, so interesting. Like I just, this whole thing is just so crazy and how sex is so connected to more than just like the physical thing. Yeah. Yeah. So can I ask you more about that? Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Yes, so please do. When you say it just makes you like cringe or, you know, want to pull back the idea of looking at your husband, what do you think that that's about? Oh, I have an absolute problem with vulnerability. Okay. And I, and I think, um, it comes down to, um, a, a little bit of, I couldn't trust him for so long. And I, I think that I need to keep up a wall because there is always a possibility that he could die. I have two children. He could screw me over again. Like, I don't want to be put back in that position of where I believed every word he said, like I fully trusted him. And then 
in my head be made a fool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 And so I think that's what ends up happening for so many people is there like what I was saying before sex, the bedroom is the last place where that wall is apparent. Right. And I think what can be so beautiful about sex and long-term monogamous relationships, but also as you're healing from something like infidelity or addiction is that sex can be very healing for both people. And so it's an exercise I give to most couples who come through my office, no matter what they're coming in with. But I would say, especially as you're recovering um, from addiction to, to try it just to see what happens for both of you. Because sometimes rather than waiting to think you're in a place where, okay, trust is established now, you sort of have to like create it and then let the trust build. So it's like, you have to break down the wall for trust to build rather than like building trust outside of a wall. And so I find that exercise to be really transformational for people, for both people, because it also lets the person who's an addict know that they can have, that they can surrender back into this relationship in a new way. And it's a process of rediscovering themselves in this relationship. And that goes for both people. So something funny or sorry, just to jump in, uh, something funny. Uh, so there was some show one time and it was like, Hey hubby, it was a comedy. Hey hubby, we need to have sex after 19 days because you know, on day 20, it gets weird type of thing. Yeah. And so you on your multiple different times, um, cause mm-hmm. I follow you mostly on Instagram, uh, mm-hmm. you say like scheduling it C- curious on if it's like, like, I just can't get there. And it's like, okay, but every Monday I know I'm having sex. And even if it's the physical act, do you see that? Because it's like, you know, that every Monday it's happening, Mm -hmm. it helps blossom into other things. So yes and no. So first of all, you know, sex, like so many things can get pushed back to the bottom of the priority list, especially when you've got a busy life and you've got kids that you're managing and running around like a chicken with your head cut off half the time. And so it's just one of those things like, oh, we'll get to it or the desire for it is there. But by the end of the day, you're exhausted. Um, And so it just seems to kind of fall lower and lower on the priority list. But we know that a strong sexual connection is really important for relationship health. And so it's so important to make that a priority. And so every couple has to determine the best way to make that a priority for them. And um, I am a big proponent of planning sex. Um, Because I like to tell people like when you were dating, you were scheduling it. You just didn't call it that. You called it like, I'll pick you up on Friday night, but everyone knew what was going down on Friday night. And there was a lot of buildup to it and excitement and anticipation. You just didn't like call it that. And then once you're living in the same house with someone suddenly, rather than it being like this fun date you're looking forward to, it becomes like something else on the calendar. So you have to like reframe the way you're thinking about it. Um, And the other reason for that is that What a lot of people don't realize is that for women in particular, we enter a sexual experience more from like a place of neutrality as opposed to like, I am ready to rip your clothes off. Um, And so there are differences in how people experience sexual desire. So some people have just spontaneous sexual desire. I feel horny. Let's have sex. 
other people have more responsive sexual desire, which um, is more like, like kind of an openness to, but it's not until maybe there's a little bit of arousal or your partner's like paying you more attention or you feel like you're really emotionally connected that then the desire to have sex kicks in. And surprise, surprise, about 80% of men say that most of the time they experience spontaneous sexual desire and about 80% of women say that most of the time they experience receptive sexual desire. And so what ends up happening is that women are waiting around for this spontaneous desire to kick in and it doesn't. And so that's why a lot of couples get kind of mismatched. And so that's one of the reasons why setting some time aside can be really helpful because then you know, okay, what can I do to like help prepare myself or my environment or what needs to happen in my relationship to make everything more conducive to sexual connection that night. And the idea is that, you know, as long as the experience is positive, that there's more chances that the spontaneous desire will be there too. And then it helps just keep the relationship in a really good place, usually for both people. That's so, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> a lot. Um, okay, so when you were talking about, it makes a lot of sense when you're saying that women kind of wait for the opportunity and then they can entertain the idea. And in my experience with uh, my addicted partner, when he was using, he wasn't interested in me in that way because he was just kind of in his own head or whatever. It was very selfish, focused on the addiction. Um, so for me, that led to a lot of, you know, like, self-esteem issues like I was thinking like is it me am I not attractive enough is our relationship not good enough and I feel like I had a hard time like one of the first things that I had to address in my recovery was just like re-establishing that my worth or what I felt with myself and so I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of reopening that intimacy with yourself and like what part that plays even before you're ready maybe to start having this it sounds really fun like this like re-healing through sex yeah sexual <laughs> but, healing Marvin Gaye was on <laughs> but if you're not quite ready for that if you need healing with yourself first how how would you approach someone with that issue yeah that's a great question um and I do think well to one of the points you make, everyone, whether they realize it or not, wants to feel desired, wants to feel wanted. And because that's usually an expression of love within a relationship. And so, you know, I see so many couples where maybe there's a discrepancy in sexual desire. One person wants sex more than the other. Well, if after time, the person with the higher sex drive stops initiating, suddenly the other person's like, wait a second, like, where are you, <laughs> right? Because even though they weren't that receptive to it, at least they felt wanted. And so when that stops, when there is the lack of initiating a sexual connection from one or both people in the relationship, it can take a huge toll on self-esteem and make you start asking those questions like, well, am I not attractive to the person anymore? Am I not sexually desirable anymore? And that can 
you know, make you feel unworthy and all of the stuff that you just described. And so I would say the best first step, if you feel like you're just not quite ready to reestablish a sexual connection with your partner is to get in touch with your own sexuality. Cause I think that sometimes we put our sexuality in the hands of other people way too much. Um, women in particular, because a lot of women are taught from a very early age that like sex is something you do for someone else. You lose, if you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, you lose your virginity to someone else. And that's just like the worst way of thinking about sexuality. And so um, like learning to self-pleasure again, doing things that make you feel alive and not just in a sexual context, because it's Eros is a way of experiencing sexual aliveness, but you want to feel like alive in general. <laughs> I think before you can expect to, for that um, feeling to transition into sex. And so whatever that is for you, whether it's something creative like painting or getting into ceramics or cooking or learning something new or athletic, like getting into a flow state when you're running or exercising, like those are all great things to just get you back in touch with your body and get anything you can do to get into that flow state where you feel like there's just kind of a loss of space and time. You're so absorbed and engaged in whatever it is you're doing. That's one of the best things you can do to get you back in touch with yourself and ultimately with Eros. And then once you have that, you can start exploring your body again, learning what is pleasurable to you because that changes with time. I mean, what worked for you, you know, when you were young, isn't necessarily gonna work today. And so definitely I think um, understanding your body again and, and then seeing if that readiness um, translates into the relationship is what I would advise. I agree with Jessica and I was thinking the exact same thing while you were talking about just how much sense that made with the spontaneous versus response, the responsiveness, and it fits in my relationship dynamic um, as well. I would consider my partner to be the more spontaneous and then me the like responsive. Um, and so going back to during that active use time when I did not know active use was happening and that spont spontaneous like desire sort of stopped it left me feeling really confused and all of those questioning things that we just talked about and that's kind of been a lingering effect where I have never been really like an initiator I'm more like open to it but like somebody else needs to usually initiate and so then that just made it 10 times harder but I know from talking to my partner at times like me initiating would be something that like he liked, like that makes him feel desired going back to what you're saying. Like we all want to feel desired. And so like, if I am never the one to initiate, then that leaves him feeling like something's wrong. Um, and so then my last point of this kind of tying into when you were going through the like litmus test, the like looking at each other didn't make me feel all cringy like it did for Katie, but it was about the communication part that made me feel like cringy. I think that's where I struggle a lot is just like communicating around sex, like communicating my needs or wants, or like bring that up with him. And I feel like that ties into the initiating part too. Like there will be times where I'm like, oh yeah, like 
I, I want to have sex right now. That would be like nice and fun. But then it's like figuring out how to get past that awkwardness. Totally. So, so yeah. yeah. So I, I have two thoughts about what you're saying. One is kind of one of the classic symptoms of codependency, which is often at play with people who are partners of addicts. And that is feeling like they are worthy. Like there is even space for their wants and needs and desires and lusts in a relationship. And so that's why continuing to work through codependency is so such a key element of couples who are in recovery, because you have to believe that your desires are just as worthy and important and valuable and sacred as your partners. So that's one piece of it. The other, well, then there's actually two more pieces. The second is that talking about sex can be a really unsexy conversation. Even if you don't have a history of like issues around sexuality, just putting it out there can feel awkwardness. And so rather than trying to find some key to making the awkwardness go away, it's sort of that like charging through it mentality that's gonna be your friend and just knowing it might be awkward and that's okay because like sharing awkward moments together is one of the things that ultimately creates intimacy, like going through that together, telling your partner, look, I wanna express some sexual thoughts or some thoughts about our sex life to you. I'm feeling super awkward and uncomfortable with it. Can you just promise me that you'll respond openly and not judge me? And, you know, do I have, can I trust you to like put myself out there? So just like saying you feel awkward can help take the edge off a little bit. The third thing is, sometimes we don't know what we want. Like, it's just hard to like, there's so many different things you can do. And while there, you may be like game to try things that your partner suggests, sometimes like, you don't know what you don't know. And so a lot of times like all, and it's available on my website, I'll give people like this real, I think it's like a six page handout on like tons of different things you might consider trying sexually. And it, you know, covers everything from like, this is what I prefer my genitalia to be referred to as to like, probably not interested in trying anal fisting at any point in time. Like you can cross it, you know, so there's like tons of stuff on there. And so I'll have people just go through it. And like you, you put a checkbox next to things you currently do or another check, if it's something you want to do more of, or there's a box you can check if it's something you don't currently do, but you're interested in trying, definitely want to try or definitely don't want to try. And then you talk about it with your partner. And so I think just having like a tool can be really helpful as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to have to look that sheet up. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, all three points that you made when you said the codependency, I was like, oh, shocker that that came up. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's an area that's getting worked on. And then the awkwardness, just pushing through it. Um, and then that last thing, I think that tool will be super, super helpful because it, that's a lot of the struggle sometimes is just feeling like you don't know what to say or like terminology or identifying your needs and things, which I guess that ties into the yeah. 
codependency as well. Like, what do I want? It ties into codependency. I think it also just ties into like life as a woman, like what I was talking about before, like, there's just not as much of an emphasis on female sexuality being as valuable as male sexuality. And so whether you have a history of codependency or not, I think it's just really hard for women to find their sexual voice and to believe that their desires are just as valuable as their partners. The good thing is that most of the time partners are dying to know. <laughs> and so they're like, please tell me what I can do. I'll do anything to make this sexual experience better for the both of us. And so it's really good for both men and women, for women to have a strong sexual voice. Yeah, that's awesome. So as we're kind of wrapping up, I think probably, so let's talk about infidelity. How do you, how do you move past that? Because I'm sure not only in addictive relationships, I'm sure that you've experienced that lots and lots in your field of work. And so what advice or what can you tell people um, who have had infidelity, who want to try to work through it? Like, what are some of those things that, that you have helped couples kind of work through that, um, whether it's successful or not, who knows, but what are your tips? So I would say my biggest tip, especially for survivors of betrayal and infidelity is to approach it as you would any trauma, like find a therapist who has training in the treatment of trauma, because it is one of the biggest traumas that anyone can experience because here you have put like all of your faith into this person and this relationship, or you've had children with them and you have a whole life and vision together and they take all of that and dump it over your head. And that is those attachment wounds can be so profound. And so the best piece of advice I give to people is to get trauma therapy on the betrayal, whatever that is. Um, and so looking for someone who is like trained in EMDR or somatic experiencing or any of the trauma modalities, I think can be the best course of action. And to do that early on, you know, it's one of those things that communication skills and disclosure and those sort of thing will get you so far, but to like hear, heal those deeper emotional wounds, that's where the trauma therapy comes into play, I think. Yeah. And we've recently um, been in contact with a woman who does the EMDR and that is so wild. Just what she, it's like wild. Um, I'd be interested to probably try some of it myself, but yeah. Could you explain that a little bit? Cause it's kind of, it is wild. Yeah, I do it myself. So it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, which is kind of a mouthful, but it's an intervention that originally was primarily used to treat soldiers coming back with PTSD. Um, And the idea is that when we go through something really traumatic, our brain has a really hard time making sense of that information. Typically when we go through like a milder negative experience in life, like our brain can categorize that we recover from it. If someone, you know, if we're talking about it later on, we might be like, oh yeah, like this awful thing happened, but like, we're not flooded with all the emotions we had about it at the time. We're not having nightmares about it anymore. It's just like this thing that happened. But when we go through significant trauma, that process becomes interrupted. And that's where we can like ruminate and flashback. And we just feel like we're stuck on this 
wheel of trying to fill in the gaps of something that we just can't make sense of. And so we can get locked in on negative thoughts. We can get locked in, um, you know, feelings that no longer belong in that situation, but show up anyway. We can even have like lingering somatic issues like this like knot in my chest that just won't go away or this pit that's in my stomach that just won't go away and so what emdr seems to do is jumpstart the brain's natural processing to help it make sense of the information or to help reprocess it in a way so that it's no longer negatively affecting us and they think the way it does that is kind of by mimicking what happens during REM sleep so during REM sleep which stands for rapid eye movement it's a phase of sleep everyone goes through the brain is very active it's processing information that stage of sleep is crucial for learning because there's a lot of neural connections that are being made and during that sleep cycle if you've ever watched someone sleep you'll see the eyes are going back and forth under the eyelids so they know there's some link between the eyes moving back and forth and information processing so essentially with EMDR, we're kind of mimicking that right brain, left brain, bilateral stimulation, whether it's by having someone follow, like sometimes I don't like a ton of machinery or equipment. So a lot of times I'll just use my hand and have people follow my hand back and forth or um, some therapist will give their clients headphones that have tones that alternate back and forth, or sometimes I'll alternate tapping on my client's knees and as we're doing that, we're talking about whatever it is that they're trying to recover from. And there's just this like magic that happened where suddenly like the negative thoughts go away or the body sensation disappears, or you can be like, God, like a lot of times people will say things like, I feel like I'm looking at that as like a third party as opposed to like still being in it. Um, and it's not hypnosis or anything like that. You're fully present the whole time, but it's um, a really powerful tool and it's a go-to for me. Yeah, wow. the, the woman the woman who does it, like describe the exact same thing you're saying and, and she's had some pretty awful stuff and she's like loved it. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's a cool yeah, thing. Very cool. I know I, when I was like 10, 15 years ago when I was a new therapist and I was in therapy, my therapist wanted to try it on me. And at first I was like, this is bullshit. This isn't working. Like what's happening here. And then like, I started to feel better. And I was like, okay, maybe there's, I should go get trained in this. So it's, it's really great. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, kind of my last thought brings it, I guess, full circle to the beginning when you were, when we were talking about your podcast and just the sexual like differences culture wise, I'm just wondering like what you, like what advice you would have for women or I guess anyone in America, like what are the things that you wish were different when it came to sex in our culture? Or is there like a myth or things that you feel like we all kind of have grown up believing that's really stunting our sexual growth? It's like, if we could just get past this, everyone would be like having so much better sex and better relationships. So, yeah. So I feel like we're in this kind of weird time right now with sexuality because 
like the Me Too movement did so much to like shine a light on unhealthy sexual patterns and we needed all of that. There's also this kind of like second wave feminism where we want an openness to all things sexual, but what we're seeing a little bit is almost like a pressure on people to like be into kink or if they don't want to have casual sex, there's like judgment against that group of people. Like, so it's almost like the pendulum I feel like has swung a little too far. And what I would really like to see happen is just a general level of respect for wherever anyone is in their sexual journey. And whether that's pushing have someone to have sex when they don't want to versus pushing someone to have sex in a way that maybe they're just not interested in. Like, I just want to see pushiness go away. <laughs> um, so that would be, I think, the biggest thing that I would like to see change is just a little bit more of a respect. And interestingly, we are seeing um, a little bit of a slide back. I think post-COVID, people are now valuing um, intimate, like emotionally monogamous relationships a little bit more so again like you're seeing a trend on the dating apps that there's a little bit less hookup happening which I think is great because I was having a lot of clients come in like men in particular who would say things like I need I'm here because I want help because I'm having ED when I'm having casual sex and I'm like well maybe that's your body telling you that like you need an emotional connection like how about we change the narrative so you don't feel bad about that, like about wanting that. And so um, just generally speaking, I would say, I just want people to back off a little bit and have more respect for whatever someone wants sexually and for everyone to feel like they have the freedom to sexually explore if they want to. Amen. That's <laughs> magical. I <laughs> uh, second that. <laughs> Well, Emily, thank you. Thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. Um, we really appreciate it. Everyone, please go follow uh, Emily on TikTok or Instagram or whatever social. Um, and your email, I'm sorry, your website again is emilychamia.com. Uh, listen to the podcast, all of that. Any closing words from you, Emily? I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me on today. I think um, it's so important to talk about healthy sexuality and recovery. It's an area I think that, you know, there's starting to be more dialogue around, but it's been absent, I think, and, and it should happen earlier in recovery, in my opinion. Um, and so I'm glad that you guys are opening the door to have that conversation. Well, cool. Even if well, you feel awkward doing it. Even right. if it's awkward. <laughs> pushing well, through. Yeah. Right, pushing through. Awesome. All right. Thank well, you. thank you. And everyone, thanks for listening and keep coming back. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with, or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining our virtual support group. For details, visit us at recovering2.com. We know what you're going through, and we're here to help. We're Recovering Too.
Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back. We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.